Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. I think we're in 1 Samuel 11 and 12 this week. The 12 is aspirational, right? We'll see if we get that far. If I plan for one chapter, we end up doing two. So, But I think every week I plan for two chapters, we only end up doing one. So I plan for one and a half today. We'll see what happens. So. All right, let's pray and let's jump into the text. Lord, thank you for this beautiful day, for the sunny weather, for your goodness to us that we, we see in the small things. We pray that you would open our eyes to see your watchful care and your bountiful provision for us, that we might return you thanks and praise. We pray that you'd be with us this evening as we study your word, as we seek to see Jesus in First Samuel and see ourselves as well. We pray that you would show us your faithfulness to your people and your constancy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. 1 Samuel 11. Are you ready? Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, 
let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. All right. What do you notice in the text? What things stand out to you? I want to know why the Ammonites allowed um, them to send a message so that they can get help. That was my thought, too. You have seven days to get some help. I mean, they're idiots. Can you imagine that? Like, in any other context, right? Um, Like, the the army has surrounded a village and is demanding that the Taliban give up something. And the Taliban says, give us seven days to send messages to our friends. And then... Uh, if they don't come, then we'll give ourselves up. Yeah. Um, I don't think we see any other example of anything like that anywhere. And I think that shows us just how confident Nahash was. He's like, yeah, sure. I mean, that, I'm going to save some ammunition if I just wait for you to come out to me. I can, I can camp here for seven days. So there... They're a little deceptive, though. Uh, if, you, if you look at the language that they use, I'm sure we have different renderings of this phrase around the table here. Um, in the ESV, it says, uh, if there's no one to save us, verse 3, we will give ourselves up to you. What do other people have for that last phrase? I have, if no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. Surrender to you, okay. Give ourselves up, surrender. What do other people have? Does anybody have go out to you or come out to you? Come out to you. Yes. So the phrase that they are using, and they use it again a few verses later after they get the message back from Saul, is all it means is we will come out to you, right? And clearly implied for the benefit of Nahash, is we will surrender ourselves to you. But the language is not that specific. It could just as well mean come out to fight you, right? And in their message to Nahash, they, they leave that open-ended. Like they've clearly implied that if no one will save us, we'll surrender ourselves to you. And so that's the way most of our translations, but not all of them, have chosen to render that in English. But the word that they use is actually, it's, it's less, it's more ambiguous than that. It leaves open the possibility that they'll come out to meet them in battle instead. And so when they reply later, they're using the same word. Um, they haven't changed their phrasing. And I don't know, maybe they're telling themselves, it's not exactly a lie, right? I mean, she is my sister. But, right, they're using language that, is clearly meant to lead Nahash to understand that they're going to voluntarily give themselves up, but doesn't actually say as much. So, Is it possible that Nahash was so confident that he was going to, he wanted them to go get all of their army, and that way when he defeated them once, that he defeated them? Given how well Israel has done up to this point, with the exception of the Lord defeating the Philistines when they'd, when they'd gathered to renew the covenant, right? And that the Israelites didn't fight then. Yeah, 
he may be thinking, you know what? Sure, bring your friends. They'll be easy pickings too. So that's certainly a possibility. Right, they had rest from the Philistines. It was mentioned earlier during the lifetime of Samuel. But Nahash seems to have been in the habit of raiding. So some have suggested that, that Nahash's activities are actually the catalyst uh, that causes this generation to ask for a king. So he's probably had some success and has no reason to think that they're going to present any kind of meaningful opposition to him. It's still a really, really dumb strategy. So, of course, it's easy to say that as an armchair general. Half-truth. Is there anything associated with um, a, just, a just war theory here where murder, is murder and half-truths are okay in war? Sure. That's a good question, right? They are, like, they're presenting this ambiguous message, but it's, it's also a measure of self-preservation. And there's, they're rather straightforward to ask about sending messengers. Um, and so I think the greatest deception here is actually Nahash's deception of himself uh, and his troops to believe that whatever comes, they're okay and they'll prevail. It's like he hasn't stopped to seriously consider the possibility that he might have to meet warriors in combat. So I don't see anything wrong with the behavior of the men of Jabesh Gilead in their ambiguous message to him, if that makes sense, right? Um, because they're preserving themselves. This is a context of war, right? We wouldn't consider laying an ambush, which is a deceit of a kind, right? To be a, a violation of the Ten Commandments, for instance. In the, in the conduct of war. So, but no, that is a good question. So, good. What else do you notice in the text? Which town is it that we're concerned with? Jabesh Gilead, right? What's important about Jabesh Gilead? Well, the art goes back to Kiriath Jerim. So it's a. Judge the people there. And so, it was kind of like a circuit judge. In so, his seven or eight? Yes. So, in chapter seven, the end of chapter seven, verse 16, he went on a circuit, Samuel did, to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And then would go home to Ramah. So, it's not an association with Samuel that makes Jabesh Gilead important. It's actually an association with Saul. Um, so in, in one of the last verses of the preceding chapter, we get this comment that Saul goes home. And where does he go home to at the, at the end of chapter 10? He goes home to Gibeah, right? Gibeah. <clears throat> Saul, Saul goes home to Gibeah, and then they'll, they'll send messengers to Gibeah. So remember, we commented a little bit, Saul is not just from Benjamin which is, of course, the tribe that started the civil war at the end of the book of Judges. He's from Gibeah. So he's not just from that tribe. He's from that town. And if we go back and reread the end of Judges and the, the civil war, which there are several references to in this chapter, um, Jabesh Gilead is the one town in all Israel that didn't send out men to fight in the civil war against Benjamin. 
So because of that, right, there are 600 men of Benjamin left after the Civil War, and they need wives, right? So Israel decides to go and slaughter the men of Jabesh-Gilead and take the women and give them to the remainders of Benjamin as wives. That takes care of 400 of them, right? And the other 200, they have to kidnap virgins from the festival at Shiloh. It's, the whole thing's a huge mess, right? The end of the book of Judges is terrible. There's no go therefore and do likewise, in case we're wondering, right? But Saul and his family and his tribe have a very close association because of that with Jabesh Gilead. It's possible that, that his mom or his grandmother is from Jabesh Gilead. So several things are happening in this chapter as it at several points is going to point back to the end of the book of Judges to remind us where are these people from, where are we geographically, uh, the way he cuts up the ox and sends it through all Israel, uh, reminds us of the Levite chopping up his concubine and sending her pieces throughout all Israel to summon the tribes to war against Benjamin. And so it reminds us of where Saul's from, um, but it also raises the question of what's wrong with Israel. Has it changed? Has it changed for the better, right? And where will things go from here? Is Saul, as one who comes out of that tribe, is he the king we need? And is he going to lead us righteously in the paths of the Lord. So this location is important, right? And so here at the beginning, so Jabesh Gilead bookends Saul's reign, right? Because he's, there's this, we'll get into it a little bit, but there's this really strange thing that's happened where Saul has been anointed and then he's been publicly recognized, but he's, following oxen instead of leading the nation until the end of this chapter. So this chapter seems to be the moment that kind of solidifies the beginning of Saul's reign. At the other end of 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 31, verse 11, you may remember after Saul has been slaughtered and the Philistines are displaying his body, it's the men of Jabesh-Gilead who go by night and recover the bodies of Saul and his sons and bring them back to bury them. So this town and its relationship with Saul bookends the, the narrative of Saul's reign in the book of Samuel. So Tony, isn't this part of the East practice still being called part of it? Sorry, sir? Isn't this territory part of the east side of the Jordan that's still being followed per se? That's a good question. I would have to look at a map. I, think I mean, so that. When you look at it, it's going to be some of the same territory. Yeah. That, that whole area. As as they went yeah. And yeah, that whole area is contested. So, But I don't recall off the top of my head. I should have looked where Jabesh Gilead is. And it's not marked on the maps that I have. So. Oh, there it is. Yes, it's in Gilead. So it's about halfway up the Jordan between the Dead Sea and Galilee on the east side in the territory of Manasseh. 
in the hill country of Gilead. So yes, yeah, it's on the east side of Jordan in that area, which makes sense why it's the Ammonites raiding them. Um, if you draw a map of Palestine, Israel's enemies along the east side. So here's, here's the Mediterranean. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's the Jordan River. Here's the Dead Sea. Israel's enemies spell same. So Syria, Ammon, Moab, and Edom. That's Israel's neighbors on the east side of Jordan from north to south. Ammon and Moab, are they the sons of Lot? Yes, Ammon and Moab are the sons of Lot. So Syria is also, especially in older translations, called Aram. But same is easier than double A-M-E. So there you go. Good. So that's where we are geographically. And that relationship with Benjamin and the whole narrative at the end of Judges is why it's important. Um, it's also good to reflect on Jabesh Gilead at the beginning and end of Saul's reign for all Saul's faults, for all that went wrong, right? God still works for the salvation of Israel in Saul's reign, such that he then has this close, deep, and you could even say affectionate relationship with this little town on the east side of Jordan. So, good. What else do you notice? It would appear at the end that they do worship the Lord. They have the appearances of doing it in the name of the Lord. Although sometimes Saul's heart goes back and forth. Yes. So we haven't begun to see yet. Well, maybe. We haven't clearly, unambiguously seen something definitively not right with Saul. We've seen things that make us go, hmm. And we've seen things that on the face of it seem positive. But if you look closer, you realize the narrator actually leaves it there and doesn't say whether it was good or bad. Uh, and, and a couple of those, since you highlighted the end of the chapter, there's this big contrast between the end of chapter 10 and the end of chapter 11. There are some similarities and differences. One of the similarities is this, right, they're, they're establishing or renewing the kingship, right? And everybody's there. Um, and Saul does similar things in both places, right? At the, because at the end of chapter 10, there are these folks who say, how can this man save us? And it says, but he held his peace. And we raised the question last time, is that, is that positive or negative? By the way, we didn't resolve it because the narrator just leaves it out there. Is Saul failing to act when he should? Or is he exercising clemency? We have the same thing at the end of chapter 11. Uh, right, starting in verse 12, the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Is that good or bad? We're back to, is this Saul exercising clemency and that's praiseworthy? Is because Saul is the Lord's choice and so rejection of him is rejection of the Lord, is this Saul 
failing to carry out um, the judgments of the law against lawbreakers, right? The narrator doesn't tell us. He just says what Saul said, and he keeps going. And there are several things like this about Saul that as we keep going, they leave us with these unanswered questions that then, right, they may not strike us on a first reading, but we keep reading about Saul. We find out more later, and it will probably cause us to reflect on these moments differently than before we've read further into the narrative. In, in the first instance, though, where he just holds his peace and he goes home, he's not being proactive. He's not really being decisive. Whereas when it comes up again here, he's the people are ready to do it. They're ready to kill these men. And he steps in and, no, we're not going to kill them this day. Lord, towards salvation. And I feel like that is more him acting as a leader than in the first case. Yes. So he is more proactive here. Well, he's more active. And the question is whether that's pro or not. Well, verses 6 and 7, so. the Spirit of God comes upon him to see a change. We do. There are some interesting things going on with that. So the only other places in the Old Testament where the specific language of the Spirit of God or of the Lord, and those are distinct phrases, rushing upon someone are Samson and Judges, Judges 14 and 15, Saul in chapter 10, and then here, David in chapter 16, and then a spirit of God for harm rushed upon Saul in chapter 18. So that leaves us with lots of questions about the significance of that phrase for Saul. And there's also an interesting distinction in that the spirit of the Lord rushes on David and on Samson. But in chapter 10, verse 10, and in chapter 11, verse 6 here, it's the Spirit of God that rushes upon Saul. And Samuel had told him in 10, verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. Of course, God is the Lord. We're not trying to make a division there. But there's an interesting distinction in how the narrator has chosen to phrase things. So... How does chapter 11 read? How does chapter 11 read? Does this sound like it belongs in a narrative of kings? Or does it sound like it belongs in the book of Judges? Judges. I mean, I think it sounds like it belongs in the book of Judges, right? This town's being afflicted by a foreign oppressor. They send messengers, right? The people hear the message. They cry out. They weep. Right? This is a familiar pattern from the book of Judges. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul. Saul cuts up his oxen, right? Like the Levite cut up his concubine, right? Echoing again the end of the book of Judges. All Israel gathers, and then who delivers the people? Right? Saul commands the military action in verse 11. But even in Saul's own words, 
Who has worked salvation in Israel? The Lord. The Lord worked a great salvation for Israel. That phrasing, right, the framing of the story, it's unfolding, the response of the characters to the threat, the, the estimation of what's happened by the characters at the end, this sounds like the book of Judges, right? And at a couple of points, just before the people ask for a king, and then seemingly here again as well, the Lord is operating in ways that Samuel will clarify when he speaks as a prophet that teaches the people of Israel, you don't need a human king to be delivered from the peoples around you. But isn't that what he's doing that Saul is in the capacity of a judge at this point? He hasn't been made king yet. Well, that's this interesting he thing. So in the previous chapter, um, they right Samuel calls everybody together at Mizpah, um, talks to them about kingdoms and why they're a bad idea, and then they choose by lot Benjamin and then his father's house, and then and Saul, but he's hiding by the baggage. And then Samuel says, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And then the people shouted, long live the king, or the king lives, right? And then it says, Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship and laid it up in a, right, wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord and he sent everybody home. But it doesn't use the phrase that is used here in chapter 11, that he, he kinged them a king. So it's... Where he's chosen, he's anointed, he proves himself in battle, and, and he's crowned. Sort of the process there. Yes. So there seem to be several stages. Like it's a gradual realization of the kingship that develops over the chapters eight and nine and ten and eleven, uh, and then twelve, as we'll see. Um, there's this interesting thing happens in scholarship. Um, people read this and they say, well, obviously, there's, this is made up of different sources, right? And it's the whole, you know, the familiar picture of some guy with scotch tape and scissors, right? Where he's got the, the anti-king source over here and the pro-king source over here. And he's not reading it very closely. He just takes a chapter out of this and slaps it into the middle of the chapter out of that, and they just they don't fit together, right? And we're left with this, this checkerboard that doesn't make any sense because we're constantly pushed one direction or another. Is, are we for the kingship or are we against the kingship? Well, it's much more artful than that, isn't it? And there, there are a couple of things going on. And one is this gradual accession to the monarchy that we see Saul going through but also this back and forth between what the Lord intends for the kind of kingship he has in mind and what the people want and what they envision a king should be, right? Because if we go all the way back to Deuteronomy 17, the Lord has said, when you get to the land, you're going to want a king. This is what your king should be like. 
But when the people request a king, they're not requesting a king in terms of Deuteronomy 17. They're looking around at the nations around them who enjoy much more military success than they do. And oh, what do you know? Aside from their shiny weapons, they all have a king who leads them in battle. We want one of those. And so their request for a king is not phrased in terms of what God has already told them he's going to give them. And so some of that tension that we see coming to the surface in the narrative is not so much a one author is for a king and one author is against a king and somebody's just stuck both texts in a blender and then given us First Samuel. It's this tension between what the people want and what the Lord intends. So, At what point did he become king? Was it when the oil was on his head or was it after the battle? That's sort of unclear. That is unclear. Yeah, it's really unclear. Um, part of that's just the nature of the process. I think we could ask that about Charles, right? Charles III. At what point did he become king, right? Did he become king when his mother died? Did he become king when he took the oath in Scotland, right? Did he become king at the coronation? Did he become king at some point in between when parliament recognized something? right? There, there have been several pieces to the process to Charles III assuming the throne. But I don't think at any point people would have said, well, he's not king yet. So yeah. Uh, and I think we see a similar thing happening with Saul, because as you mentioned, right, he's, he's privately, he's anointed by Samuel, but there's no public proclamation. It's not public knowledge yet. And then he, he appears and he's proclaimed, right? The people say, long live the king, but then he's not ruling like a king. And we'll talk, we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, and then here, Samuel says, let's go and renew the kingship. But that doesn't seem to be how the people see it when it says they made him king. So there's this long multi-step process and not everybody involved in the process seems to see it the same way. It's interesting that people put their question to Samuel about um, punishing the men who had been against Saul and Saul jumps in and answers for Samuel and Samuel never responds to that particular Thank you. Thank you for bringing out that detail because I, I failed to mention the microphone. The microphone died. Okay. I'll try this. I'll just move this over. So, yes, thank you for bringing that out. So, that's an important detail in the text um, that in, I think it's verses 12 and 13, that Samuel is asked a question that Saul answers. About, about sparing the people. So, and does that, do we see in that um, Saul encroaching on a role that still belongs to Samuel? Uh, as we get into chapter 12, you'll see several of us have a, a heading in our Bible that calls chapter 12, Samuel's farewell address. But Samuel doesn't go away. 
This is not Samuel's farewell address. This is Samuel, in some sense, relinquishing that part of his role as a judge because Saul fulfills that role. This is, if we get into chapter 12, we'll talk about this more. But he's not giving up his role as a prophet. Like he's not ceasing to function as a leader for Israel. And this will actually be... Uh, a point of tension and conflict over the next several chapters. What's the proper role of the king? What's his sphere of authority? And what is outside of his sphere of authority? And what happens when the king reaches for things outside of his proper sphere of authority? Right? And what we'll find, right, spoiler alert, is that Saul will be rejected from being king. First, a rejection of his dynasty, and then a rejection of himself. So, um, out of curiosity, verse five—is it common that a king would still work the fields and walk behind the oxen, or did he just really enjoy doing that? And hey, you're king; you can do what you want. So that's a really, really good question. We think of kings living in palaces and serving in government and all of these sorts of things, right? This is, and I think sometimes we read this and we have in mind kind of the the mythology of George Washington as like a modern Cincinnatus, right? Cincinnatus was half a millennium after this, right? So if you don't remember, Cincinnatus had been a member of the Senate. I think he'd been consul at one time. And at that time in Rome, you typically only served as consul once, and then you retired from public service. And so Cincinnatus was living on the other side of the Tiber. He had his own land. He was working it. He was well into retirement. And Rome's army had an emergency where they were pinned down by an enemy. And so members of the Senate came and begged Cincinnatus to take up the office of dictator, which didn't have associated with it what we have associated with it. It's an emergency military role where he would have absolute authority, didn't have to run anything by the Senate or another consul or anything, so he could raise an army and do what needed to be done, either for the term of the emergency or six months, whichever was shorter. Well, he did it in 15 days, right? He left his farm, raised an army, saved the Roman army, came back, gave up his title, went back to farming, right? And we see George Washington in that light, right? As one who served in a time of need and then went back, right? That's not what's happening with Saul here. Um, Yeah, we should look at where Saul is and ask all kinds of questions because they just proclaimed him king, right? They just said, long live the king. And then Samuel sent everybody home. And well, home for Saul means back to the family farm. You know, the one that the donkeys escaped from. And so he's, he's not leading armies. He's not judging the nation. He's not going out at the head of military forces. He's plowing a field just like anybody else, right? So and this is another one of those is this... Is this part of just the long process of him becoming king and he's between stages here? 
Or is there something about what happened in chapter 10 that just didn't bring us all the way there? And I mentioned these similarities and contrasts between the end of chapter 10 and the end of chapter 11. The biggest contrast is that there's nobody holding out at the end of chapter 11. The end of chapter 10, you have this whole group of people, whether it's a handful or a whole bunch, who are like, how can this guy save us? Which, given what we had seen over chapter 9 and 10, that's a fair question, right? He can't find his own donkeys. He has no personal resources to figure out what's going on. Uh, and he tries to hide behind the military equipment, even though he's tall and awkward and his foot sticks out and everybody can see him, right? How can this guy save us? But after this episode with Jabesh Gilead, nobody's saying that, right? There are no holdouts. Everyone rejoiced greatly. Uh, there are verse 15. They sacrificed, there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So did they think he ever embraced being king? He certainly seems to eventually. That's a good question. At what point did he embrace being king? He really does when he's about to die and be removed from being king. He's definitely embraced it by the time David appears on the scene. So he was showing a little bit of leadership in this one. I mean, he told him, volunteer for the army, I'm going to kill all your oxen, basically. Yes. Yes. He definitely, this is one thing to consider um, as we read Old Testament narrative. Remember that the narrator will very rarely, if ever, give an explicit evaluation of someone. They will describe what happened. They will recount what someone says. They will recount what they did. But very rarely will they, they will say things, but very rarely will they say, and this thing displeased the Lord. It's not never, but it's not often. And so we're very often left in trying to figure out whether what someone does is good or bad to read more of the passage, to read further along in the narrative, to read other parts of scripture. And that's one thing hanging over this chapter in particular, um, is what are we to make of the several ways that this chapter is calling back to the end of Judges, right? Surely that's at least mixed, right? Are we being reminded of the civil war that tore Israel apart because maybe this is the undoing and the reversal of that. And this is one out of Benjamin who will bring Israel together. That's a possibility. Or are we being reminded of that because Saul, whose name means asked for, is the king they deserved and not the king they wanted and will become a disaster as he reigns. He hasn't become a disaster yet. We have several signals, and it's, at this point, it's hard to tell if these are red flags or hopeful signs. 
Does he really become a disaster ultimately? I mean, for David, but I mean, he still does win battles and helps Israel together. Yeah, I mean, there. I can think of later kings, particularly of Israel, but I can think of later kings that are a lot worse. That's right. There's like Rehoboam, Samuel's, or uh, Solomon's son. That's a really good comment. Right? Is Saul, and this, this frustrates us um, as we read the Old Testament. We want someone to be all good or all bad. Right? We don't want that with ourselves. Goodness, no. Right? We want it to be recognized by others, by the Lord, right? That we're a mix of good and bad things, and we certainly have redeeming qualities. But we want the people we meet in the pages of Scripture to be all one or all the other. We don't really. We think we do. Um, But when we see someone as all good or all bad, um, it immediately makes them someone we can't relate to. I think maybe that's part of the reason we want them actually to be all good or all bad. Because if they're all bad, then the demands made on them and the opportunities that they have, they're not things that we have to learn from, right? We can excuse ourselves from the implications, right? If the, if the demands are made of people who are not like us. So we're very crafty. Why do you think we're like that? Because we're not like that. We're not like that? Everybody's <laughs> all good and all bad. We're like that. God's ways are different than our ways. His thoughts are different than our ways. He's, he's really, because of sin and the fall, I mean, things go all different kinds of ways throughout the scripture, even in our own lives. They do. They do. Yeah. I know we all want a hero at the end, but that's, that's Hollywood. That's not the Bible. Yeah, we like to find ways to, well, we're, we're very good at finding ways to keep scripture at arm's length, right? Because scripture makes demands of us. If we read it carefully, if we reflect on the story it tells, the people it talks about, it makes demands of us, right? It's... It's easy to read these chapters and to think very particularly about Israel's political and historical situation and how it's different than ours and how they're in an agrarian society and they probably don't have a standing army at this point. And there are all of these things about their, their cultural moment that are so different than us. And we can get caught up in those details in a way that removes it far from us and and will um, insulate us from any of the demands that the text might make on us. We can also do the opposite, right? We can flatten the text and we can say there's no difference between us and them and we we can abuse what Scripture is saying and... And in the same way, miss what it's telling us. Um, 
And we, we tend to go one of those directions, right? We either want no demands on us at all, or we want a list, a curated list that we feel like we can keep, right? And we can, we can take that off. And what we see instead is a very complex relationship between a God who is driven to redeem a people that he has chosen to love for his own reasons and a people that constantly shows themselves to be unlovely until God makes them so. And that's terrifying and uncomfortable to contemplate. If we embrace it, it's also beautiful and freeing. Nobody wants to hear, you're not lovely. But if you take that together, right, God chose you in your unloveliness, set his love on you in your unloveliness, and is at work to make you lovely. And that's beautiful, and that's comforting, and that's freeing, right? Because one of the things that means is that when we look in the mirror and see that we're not lovely, we can be reminded that God didn't choose us because we're lovely. And so when our unloveliness rises to the surface, we're, that doesn't put us in danger of losing God's love because that's not how we secured it in the first place. So we can, we can read the scriptures and we can see the people of God. We can see our history, the history of our forefathers in the faith, and see how their unloveliness might manifest differently, but is not really of a different order than our own unloveliness. And we can be comforted by God's refusal to abandon his people because they're unlovely. And his decision to remain with them, to redeem them for himself despite that. It's shocking how, how direct scripture can be about that, right? In Deuteronomy, Moses just lays it on the people. Whereas you think you're so great. Well, you're not. God didn't choose you because you were great. God chose you because you were small and because he set his love on your father's. And promised that he would do this. It's not because you deserve it. Because, I mean, I don't know where you've been the last 40 years. But you don't deserve it. What else do you see in chapter 11? What other questions do you have? Why did they separate um, the Israelites and Judah? Is that an indication of what's coming down the pike? The division between the two? It's an excellent question. So in verse 8, it mentions... Um, at Bezek, when he mustered them, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And then in another place in Samuel, it talks about um, Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim. And so later, Ephraim will become a way of referring to the whole northern kingdom, as does Israel. And Benjamin will actually, despite the, the early tension we see between the house of Saul and the house of David, Benjamin will align itself with the southern kingdom. So I do think, I think you're right, that here in verse 8, we get a glimpse 
we get a little picture that what will later become a political division already exists on some level, that there's this separation of Judah from the rest of the nation. Do you think anyone's paying attention to the fact that, I mean, it was prophesied when Jacob was on his deathbed that the scepter would never depart from Judah. Do you think anybody's paying attention to that at this point? It's on anybody's radar? Given how much attention they're paying to other things, I don't think they're paying much attention to that. But that is, right, in Genesis 49, we're told that the scepter will not depart from Judah, which is interesting even within that narrative because it's the children of Joseph that get prominence in the blessing, Ephraim and Manasseh. And it should be Reuben, as the firstborn who would rule, but it's of Judah, who's born after Reuben and Simeon and Levi, of whom it said the scepter will not depart. So that has been stated long before, but no, it doesn't seem to be on anybody's mind at this point in Israel. At least it hasn't been recorded for us. How are we doing on time? You guys want to go into chapter 12? Sure. All right. Let's look at it. Um, before we do, what deliverance did we expect? But if we go back and we look at what Samuel told Saul, what deliverance did we expect? Right, he talks to him back in, at the beginning of chapter 10. And we actually tracked this on the whiteboard a couple of weeks ago in terms of what Samuel said and what Saul did, what's narrated in the later verses, right? Um, so you're going to go and you're going to see three men of God going or going up to God at Bethel with his food. They're going to be two of the three loaves, right? Then you'll come to the hill of God where there's a garrison of the Philistines. And then you're going to go to Gilgal. But what happens in chapter 11? Right? They go to Gilgal at the end of the chapter because Samuel suggests it. But we're not fighting Philistines at any of those locations that have been named. We're fighting Ammonites at Jabesh Gilead. So this is another question mark hanging over these chapters because we've been told to expect, right, based on what Samuel says, we're expecting something to happen at Gilgal at the end of seven days. And that doesn't happen here. And we're expecting something to happen with the Philistines. That doesn't happen here either. That won't happen actually until chapter 13. And so that, that difference between what we've been set up to expect and what unfolds is just another, hmm, why is that? What are we supposed to make of that? Don't know. So, okay. I've got some notes, but I think we talked about the rest of this. So let's look at chapter 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from, 
sorry, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So this is all legal language, right? He's being acquitted of any possibility of charges being brought against him on this. Verse 6, and Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hatsor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord, that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. We have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. All right, what do you notice in chapter 12? What questions do you have? One thing I noticed was that they were uh, 
Samuel Cullen to stand still, the Lord says to stand still. I think about it when they were going to leave in Egypt. And they cried out to the Lord and said, God said, stand still. And he separated the waters. I don't know how significant that is, but it, uh, it's the same, same thing. Just stand still, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. Yes, sir. It seems to happen at great moments in Israel's history when God is going to do something for them or speak to them or address them. He instructs them in this way to stand still or stand, like present yourselves before the Lord, right? And then hear what he says or hear his prophet or see what he will do for you. In um, verse 13, and now behold, the king you, whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. It's as though if, if the people haven't figured out this play with Saul's, wordplay with Saul's name, it's just being very plainly spelled out for them. Yes. Yes, so Saul's name is very carefully avoided in chapter 12. He's always referred to obliquely. But the verb that sounds like his name is used at multiple points. So in case we all forgot who we're talking about. And there's this interesting comment, the way Samuel chooses to phrase it in that verse you mentioned. Um, So, sorry, where was that? That was verse, around verse 12, 13. Now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. At at different points in earlier chapters, he's been referred to as the one the Lord has chosen. But here Samuel is also making the point that this is the king you asked for. Um, what's the so in what's going on in the first part of the chapter when Samuel's asking all of these questions of the people? As a judge of Israel, he has fulfilled all his duties well. So why did they be the king? So there are, yes, there are several. When he's talking about, have I done X, Y, or Z? Have I oppressed you? And then, then he switches and talks about everything that God the king has done for them. I think he's emphasizing why do you need a human king when the Lord your God is king. And I think it's interesting in verse 19 that the people say to Samuel, pray for your service to the Lord, your God. They don't say our God. Yeah, that's a very telling comment. So a few things to unpack there, right? As throughout this chapter, Samuel is in several ways reminding them of things he said before. They don't need a king. The Lord is their king. He's consistently delivered them in times past, namely through judges like Samuel and others before him, so that they don't need a king. Um, In his questions to them, have I done this? Have I done that? Have I done that? The, The dominant verb is take. And if you go back to chapter 8, where he describes, he warns them what a king will be like. 
There, the dominant verb is take, right? The king that you want will be a taker. And so part of him speaking here is he's absolving himself as from these things in the eyes of the people. You know I haven't done, I know I haven't done this. Can you say before the Lord, if there's anything you can accuse me of, bring it forward now. And the dominant verb in that is take. And he's calling back to what he warned them that the king they want is going to be like as he does so. And then you mentioned this, um, this comment that they make, the way they phrase it at the end of the chapter, when they're afraid. I'm looking for the phrasing in verse 19. All the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. They're terrified. They recognize, right, in this moment, in this whole chapter, and especially at the end here, Samuel continues to function as a prophet. And this whole scene is part of the way Samuel has been characterized as a prophet like Moses. Remember from from early in the time Samuel begins his public ministry, it says the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground, which calls back to Deuteronomy and the description of a prophet that the Lord would raise up, uh, of a prophet like Moses. And here he's interceding for the people in a moment where there's thunder that reminds us of Exodus 20 and Exodus 32 and 33, where the people are at Sinai and they're terrified by a manifestation of the Lord's power. And so they ask the prophet to intercede for them rather than they speak to the Lord directly. So they ask that of Moses in Exodus 20 after he delivers the Ten Commandments to them and they ask it of of Samuel here. All through the Old Testament, it talks about God being a witness against his own people. I think that's significant. He does it himself through the prophet, but he does witness against it. And in lots of them, it talks about him being judge, jury, and witness against the people. Yes. One thing we see take on... Um, a very defined structure later in Israel's history is prophets arise and and prosecute the people of God in terms of God's law. Uh, And Samuel, like the same language is not used to describe this scene, but Samuel is doing what we see prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel do um, hundreds of years later. Although so. Samuel told the people, you know, they've done all this evil. Yet in verse 22, it says, For the Lord will not forsake this people for his name, for his name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. 
yes. that real assurance. I should have been to them. Yes, to us too. Yes, so verse 22, so in that speech, right, um, it's recognizing that they have sinned, but asserting that the Lord will not forsake them. And you're right, to, to call back to what we said earlier after the previous chapter, that God didn't choose them because they were lovely, and he's not going to not forsake them because they're going to turn out to be lovely after all. Right? Samuel tells them that, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And part of why I think this is not Samuel's farewell address uh, is we see in verse 23, in light of that, that Samuel promises to continue to intercede for them and instruct them, right? This is not just, oh, I'll pray for you, right? This is Samuel seriously taking up their charge to continue to pray for them. And he says in the midst of that, not I have instructed you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. This is not Samuel saying goodbye. Like in the beginning, I mean, he's telling them, reminding them of his history with them that, look, I am trustworthy, so therefore what I'm fixing to say, you should listen to it because look at all this backstory history I have with you. And then he goes on to tell them that, again, this is not a good idea. And then they say, yeah, basically, yeah, we know, because in chapter 19, I mean, they say, we've added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. So they're still like, yeah, we hear what you're saying, but we still want to go ahead with our plan. So then he says, okay, then I'm just telling you, no, God's not going to totally abandon you, but you're going to be punished. You're going to be swept away. You're going to have hardships. So I'm going to stick around, and I'm going to keep praying, and I'm going to keep teaching you. But just know you're choosing not the right path and it's going to be hard on you. Yeah. Notice the last verse of the chapter, especially in light of other things Samuel says, right? Um, we're tempted to see this as the defining moment where Israel is settled into a monarchical form of government, right? See how many big words we can throw into that sentence, right? That from now on, Israel's going to have a king, like a human king on the throne. But that's not what Samuel presents. And that's not what the Lord is holding out to them. The continuance of a kingship is conditioned on both the kings and the people's obedience. So that if they disobey they and their king will be swept away. And if we read Deuteronomy, we know that's going to happen. Not just that it may happen, but it will happen. So. Well, speaking of their obedience, it says in verse 21, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. <clears throat> and that immediately brought to mind to me, generations later, when Jeremiah would say, um, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, 
and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Like, they turn aside to something that's empty. Yeah. And the way Samuel has chosen to phrase that in verse 21, there is a word for idol. There are a few words for idols. Samuel doesn't use any of those ordinary words for idols. So that it seems that what he has in mind in verse 21 is broader than simply idolatry. It certainly encompasses idolatry. It certainly includes, hey, don't go back and follow after the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But it also includes following a king who would lead them away from the Lord. It's a very broad term and a very broad warning. Follow the Lord and nothing else. Anything else will leave you empty. Anything else will bring the end of the kingdom. So. That what we've always done. I mean, by and large, throughout the entire Bible, when Jesus came on the scene, and even now, we're always looking for that one king or president or your nation or government to take care of us and handle all our problems versus remembering God's got it and he's the one that's handling it all. Yeah. But that's a conflict between world thinking and biblical thinking. See how God didn't come change the government, he came to change the and individuals. I was hoping to jump in before you two made these comments and say, I'm so, I'm so glad we're not like these people. And you just, you just spoiled it for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm looking at Samuel, who yeah. this is a total paradigm shift from anything he's ever studied in the scriptures. And God's telling him to go do this. And he's having to go do it. He's doing it in obedience to God. I just wonder how solid his heart is in the whole thing. I know his understanding. I don't think he has a total understanding of what God is going to end up doing, but he does trust God in that. Yeah. But, but it would be really difficult to take everything I know about the Old Testament of Samuel. And, and, you know, it's not like he heard the voice of God. This is the way God's directing him. You know, is there always a question about, you know, this? And I think that's one reason he's checking his integrity. And, uh, and checking it with the people, not only with himself, but with the people of God. Yeah. Uh, I'm asking to go A lot to think about. A lot to think about. But it's 7.20. So, what is going to happen to Israel and their king? Right? This king that they've ended up with for better or worse, right? Again, whose name sounds like asked for. What sort of king is he going to turn out to be? Will he and the people heed Samuel's warning? And will they follow after the Lord? Or will what was wrong with the people in the book of Judges turn out to be the same thing that's wrong with the people in Samuel. In Judges, it said over and over, right? In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in their own eyes. A phrase that pops up a few times in Samuel, like it did in chapter 11, when they said to Nahash, do what is right in your eyes. So will the office of king, will a human king on the throne of Israel alleviate the problem that judges identified for us? Or will it just show that what the people need is to recognize and submit to the Lord as their king? All right, let's pray. Lord, we would never say this out loud, but it is so tempting after reading passages like this to join the Pharisee in saying, thank God I am not like those people. But if we take an honest look at ourselves, we know that that is not true at all. That for all the cultural trappings and the changes in technology and location, our hearts are plagued by the same diseases that afflicted your people of old. Lord, would you reveal our sin to us? The terrifying thing to ask. And apply the balm of the gospel. Would you draw us to confess and repent and to seek you and your kingdom above all of the things that we look to instead to fulfill our wants and our desires and our, our need for significance? Would you help us see as we read the book of Samuel, not just a fascinating political thriller, but the story of a faithful God with a wayward people, a people like us and the same God who loves us and has given his son for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.